on the subject of Revelation. And I'm thinking, who preaches on Revelation, you know, in a group of people just kind of like it's a random subject, you know. I guess you got to choose. But anyway, I, I, I heard his preaching, and I remember being really built up in Christ. I remember being highly encouraged. I remember thinking, God has anointed this man for some big things. But never in a million years had I thought that I would have the amazing privilege of coming to the same church that he preaches at. And even more so that he's actually going to sit in and listen to you know. So I'm going to try not to look at him, <laughs> you know, the whole time. But I just, I just want to say, I, I, the last time I came here, I was so impressed by the work of the Spirit of Christ in this community. And I can tell God is stirring something huge in this community. Because in just the hour and a half, two hours or so that I was here, just every single person that I had the opportunity to encounter is just Christ was there. Christ was present. And the very image of Christ bearing among the church is such an amazing thing to encounter. We just read the Apostles' Creed. And one of the things that the Baptist church gets caught up on when the, in the Apostles' Creed is that holy Catholic church piece, right? And we think of the Roman Catholic church. From my perspective, it's a little bit different because the Catholic church is the fullness of the body of Christ. It is the individual local churches being, being seen from this larger, big C church perspective. And so to be able to have the opportunity to come to a church who loves Jesus Christ, like our local body loves Jesus Christ, it's such an amazing honor and privilege. So I'm just so glad to be here. I'm thankful to be here. Another thing is I know this from personal experience and from the 10 years that I've had the opportunity to go around in prisons and visit churches and things like that, that when God is stirring something up like this in a community, it's not long before we start to encounter big trials. And we begin to question, is God really at work in this community? Is God really at work in my life? Where is he? And we begin to feel a little bit distant. And so I intend to talk a little bit about that distance that we might feel from God and why God puts us through those various trials. So just by way of introduction, I want to introduce you to Joe Cameron, I haven't personally met her, but I read about her in a newspaper article. At the time that this picture was taken, she was 71 years old. She has a condition that's called congenital insensitivity to pain. This is a condition in which a person cannot feel any physical pain. So imagine what that would be like. You don't ever feel physical pain. In the magazine article, what they said was, Joe Cameron only realizes her skin is burning when she smells singed flesh. She often burns her arms on the oven and has no pain, listen to this, to warn her that she's dealing with that. Fascinated by this research, I looked up this CIP. Because feeling physical pain is vital for survival, listen, it's vital for survival, CIP is an extremely dangerous condition. In fact, it's uncommon for people with this condition, it's very common, rather, for people in this condition to die in childhood because of the injuries that they undergo and they have no idea they're undergoing it. So why am I sharing this story of Joe Cameron with you this morning? Well, it is for this purpose. We're going to take an inventory of the certain pains that are going to come our way. And those pains have a very specific purpose because when we deal with pains in our lives, it points to a remedy. It points to a solution. It points to that underlying grounding. And for us in the church, his name is Jesus Christ. The title of this message this morning is A Radical Faith Fashioned by Uncomfortable Grace. And to understand it, we're going to look at a familiar passage to many of us, Matthew chapter 14 and verses 14 to 33. So will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. 
But the crowds heard, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come onto the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Amen. You may be seated. What I'm going to talk about this morning is a pattern of faith that leads to salvation. So whether you're in the mode of seeking out Jesus, maybe you're a seasoned saint, at some point in this storyline, you're going to fall into one of these four categories that I'm going to be talking about. And if you have your notes with you, you'll be able to follow along as well. I'm going to be talking about the illustration of faith. I'm going to talk about the invitation of faith, the intercession of faith, and the implantation of faith. So let's take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you for this local body, your church, coming together for corporate worship to lift you up, to exalt you, to learn about you, to grow in you, to be sharpened, that we would make you number one in our lives. We thank you for the work that you're doing in us, and oftentimes that work leads to removing rough edges. There's a sharpening that takes place. There are certain discomforts we go through, but we know that your plans are always good because we serve a good God. And may these words that are spoken this morning be honoring to you, and may you cut into the very soul and spirit, bone and marrow of those that are listening. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a very familiar passage, and as I said, there are some of us this morning who are feeling a certain distance from God, or you're dealing with certain challenges in life, and you're questioning what is going on, and and why am I going through these situations? And so if you are in that place this morning... This passage is for you, and I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 14 and verse 33, the very last verse that we just read. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Something happened here to convince those disciples of that. It was so convincing, remember the next day when many of the multitude of the crowds left Jesus and no longer followed him, Jesus asked them, are you going to go with them? And they said, no, you have the words 
of eternal life. We have nowhere else to turn. There's only you at this point. You can't make a greater discovery than that. The discovery that Jesus is the son of the living God. And this is a milestone in Jesus' earthly ministry as well as for the disciples because this is the first recorded time in the Bible where his disciples worshipped Jesus Christ. We're in chapter 14 of Matthew at this point. You see, the father pointed out Jesus as one with God at the baptism. Even the demons on the eastern shore pointed out that Jesus was the son of God. But up until this point, at least it hasn't been recorded, that the disciples confess Jesus as one with God. They have seen miracle after miracle, healings, healing the sick, bringing sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, the lame are now walking. It's not that they haven't experienced these things. Something remarkably happened in this moment that led them to this conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. They come to this monumental affirmation, which means something must have happened between the feeding and the time they confess Jesus as the Son of God. The question I want to ask you all this morning is, how does God craft a faith like this in us? How does God craft a faith like this in us? I'm going to spend a good portion of our time this morning walking you through the experience that the disciples went through that brought them to this very conviction. It wasn't easy. There were pains that they were dealing with in the moment. But something good came out of it, didn't it? It was, an experience, it was not an experience that the disciples chose for themselves, and yet it resulted in the most life-giving conclusion. Truly, Jesus is the Son of the living God. I want to begin by the illustration of faith, and I want to get you oriented with where we're at in the text. Jesus was informed by the disciples that John the Baptist had just died, and he wants to go to a desolate place now to pray by himself. And so he tells, the, he tells the disciples he's going to go to pray. And instead what happens is the crowds follow him. So imagine Jesus now in a boat. He's making his way to a desolate place. And the crowds probably see him off from the shore. And they're just following his every movement because they want to be wherever Jesus is at, right? I mean, this is a pretty exciting sight to see. And rather than dismissing the crowds when he showed up on the shore, he actually draws closer to them. He doesn't see the crowd as an obstacle. He doesn't see them as an interruption. He doesn't see them as a hassle. This is an opportunity for grace. He sees sheep without a shepherd. This is the God we serve. This is a God of compassion and love towards those who are incapable of helping themselves. The parallel account in Mark chapter 6, verse 34 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So you have this beautiful picture of the compassion of a savior. He cannot look at these people and view them as an insignificance or an interruption. These are sheep without a shepherd. And so he begins to teach them and he nourishes them with the nutrients of the gospel kingdom of God. And he must have been doing it for a long time because in verse 15 it says, now when it was evening and when it gets late, the disciples recognize that there's this massive crowd. It's getting late. They haven't eaten anything. So the crowd's need to go home, and they need to go feed themselves. And so they ask Jesus to dismiss them, but instead Jesus tells them, you feed the crowds. Matthew chapter 14, verses 14 to 21. 
when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. You can almost imagine the conversations the disciples are having at that moment, right? (laughs) You have five loaves and two fish. This is crazy. He's asking us to feed the disciples with this. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of leftover. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. These are not little tiny baskets that you see on Easter, okay? These are, these are huge baskets. These are baskets that people kind of carry over their shoulders. It's like got this kind of feel and weight to it, you know? 12 of them now. Jesus gave the foods to the disciples to give them to the crowds. And remember, Jesus the next day gave insight into what the bread actually meant. He says, this is bread, but I am the bread of life. And so he's really pointing towards a future thing. He's actually anticipating the next day when he's going to be giving a sermon on the bread of life, and he's distributing the bread. And the question I have is this. Who is it that ushers in the kingdom of God? We know it's Jesus. And Jesus doesn't need anybody to usher in his kingdom. But you see what he did in this moment is he chose his disciples, the twelve, as the ones who would usher in the kingdom of God. He's taking the bread, and he's giving it to the disciples, and he's telling the disciples, distribute this to the crowds. Do you see what's happening here? The disciples may not have known it at the time, but what Jesus was doing is he was foreshadowing something so profound that we are now a part of the distribution of God's grace in our lives. That he has not just told us to receive grace and then get excited about it, but you are now being given the bread of life to distribute it among the crowds of people that God wants to reach out to. Isn't this an amazing image that not only were the disciples ushering the kingdom, but we have a part in it too. We are not to stand idly by and receive the bread, but we have been asked by Jesus to distribute the bread of life, the kingdom of God. This this miracle is recorded in all four gospel accounts. There are only two miracles that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This miracle right here that just took place and the resurrection. So there must be something important about this miracle that Jesus wanted to point out. Jesus Jesus fed anywhere from about 25 to about 30,000 people that day. Because even though 5,000 men, there were women, there were children involved. And so there was a massive crowd of people. So just imagine that crowd of people. In that moment, they were so impressed with Jesus that they were ready to take him as king. And this is recorded in the sixth chapter of John. I want to take a moment and read this to you. John chapter 6, starting in verse 13. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So do you see the picture here? The miracle has just taken place. The crowds are getting pumped up about Jesus, this capital P prophet. And they are ready to force him to be king, even against his will if necessary. 
This is a significant milestone in Jesus' ministry because this is the closest he got in his first coming to establishing an earthly kingdom. This was his moment, if there was any moment, to establish himself on the throne. He was winning over the multitudes. He was at the height of his popularity. And so the crowd was ready to come alongside him and install him as king. And the disciples wanted it too because they were among the crowds. For two years, they've been walking beside Jesus Christ. Finally, it is time for the kingdom of God to be ushered on earth. For them, this meant power. It meant fame. It meant prestige and popularity and prosperity. You know, those things that we desire kind of in the flesh. The people would make him king, even if it meant by force. This is it. Yes! The kingdom of God has finally arrived. This is the beginning. Which brings me now to the invitation of faith. Because at this point, I think Jesus did what I'm convinced none of us in this room would do. He tells his disciples to get in the boat, and he dismisses the crowds. You see, and this wasn't some leisure thing that Jesus said, you, okay, I'll I'll meet you on the other side of the shore, so please get in the boat. And then he tells the crowds, no, because he recognizes clearly what's happening in that moment, that the crowds want to force him into this position of kingship, and he knows it's not time. And so he actually forces the disciples into the boat, and he dismisses the crowds. And I don't want you to miss this, okay? Jesus sends them into the boat. Spoiler alert, Jesus is sending his disciples into a storm. Jesus knows exactly what's about to take place, and he does it on purpose. They were placed in the sea because they were obeying the clear command of Jesus Christ in that moment. The storm they were heading into wasn't some sort of obstacle in Jesus' mind. It's not like it was something Jesus was trying to do, and then all of a sudden the storm showed up. The storm was part of the plan all along. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. He knows exactly where they will be. He knows about the storm. He knows about the wind. He knows about the waves. And when you read it, you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why would Jesus put his children in this kind of circumstance? Why would he ever expose them to this kind of danger? Why would he call them beyond their own strength, beyond their own means, beyond their own wisdom? I thought he was a loving God. I thought this was a God full of mercy. I thought this was a God full of grace. I thought this was a God of protection. This is my deliverer. I thought he was with me. I don't understand why Jesus would put me through the storm. Jesus compels them to get into the boat. Why? Because they were caving into the same desires of the crowd. You see, Jesus knew their hearts were far far away from him. He knows how self-reliant we can be. He knows how secure we are in our own strength and in our own wisdom. And so instead, this is what Jesus does with his disciples. He places them into a storm which they did not expect in order to produce in them a faith which they could not attain in their own. I want to repeat that to you one more time. Jesus 
places them into a storm which they did not expect in order to produce in them a faith that they could not attain on their own. Or let me put it more simply, Jesus gives them what they actually need, not what they want. I want you to do something at this moment. I want you to place yourself in the boat. Put yourself in the boat for a moment. Jesus will place you into a storm that you did not expect in order to produce in you a faith that you cannot attain on your own. Jesus will place you into the storm that you did not expect in order to produce in you a faith that you cannot attain on your own. In other words, Jesus will give us what we need, not what we want. Jesus wants to build his kingdom his way, right? Remember, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. All of his plans are perfect, and we can trust him. Remember, Romans 8 says that God works all things towards good for those who love him. It doesn't say God works all things that we like towards those who love him. He says he works all things, which means the trials, the tribulations, the joys, all the experiences you go through. And I have to be very careful when I say this. Even your convictions of sin are for God's eternal purpose in the life of one who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God will take your trials and your storms, and he will produce something in those that you cannot produce in your own. And it is for the glory of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though our outward circumstances seem to indicate otherwise, it requires radical trust to know that his plans are always good. Do you know what the Bible calls this? Grace! I know this is really hard to soak up, but the Bible calls this grace. This is not some sort of grace that we typically associate with contemporary Christianity, is it? We often associate grace with a soft pillow, a well-prepared meal, a car, a well-paying job, you know, those things that make me feel really good inside. And I don't know about you, but for me, the moment I'm faced with a pinch of adversity, I begin to question God's grace in my life. No, this is a different sort of grace. This is a radical grace that produces a radical kind of faith. Dr. Paul Tripp calls this uncomfortable grace. Listen to what he has to say. We better become committed and skilled in communicating to one another in personal fellowship in the teaching and preaching, the theology of uncomfortable grace. Because often this side of eternity, God's grace comes to me in uncomfortable forms. Oh, how I long for the grace of relief, and someday that will come. But right now what I actually need is the grace of refinement. I need to be changed I need to be transformed. I need to become a person of faith. That's not God forgetting me. That's not God beating me up. That's not God being unfaithful or unattentive. The Bible calls it grace. I'm being rescued. I'm being restored. I'm being loved. I'm being changed in the process. Because those difficulties are actually empirical evidence of the zeal of his redemptive love. You are not being forgotten. You're being loved. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. That grace is doing something inside you that you could not possibly do on your own. 
So Jesus tells them, get in the boat. What a strange invitation. Let me interject something here at this point. Jesus rejected the sort of kingdom that the world had to offer, didn't he? He will establish his own kingdom, and he's going to establish it on his own terms. Mark this. At this point, the ushers of the kingdom of God are contained in one small boat, the 12. I mean, this is it. This is risky. He's devoted a majority of his ministry to these men, and they're now in the boat. Which brings me now to the intercession of faith. After the crowds are dismissed, Jesus goes to the mountain by himself to pray, and that's recorded in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 24. Immediately, he made the disciples. Immediately, right? We're missing that point where all that hypersensitive kingdom work was being done. Like, that's missing right here in Matthew, but this is why it's immediately. Jesus senses what's happening, and so immediately he sends the disciples into the boat. Get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them, it says. Wait, what? I mean, the first time they were stuck in a storm, remember Jesus was in the boat. He was sleeping peacefully. He's in the loving arms of his father at that point. I'm convinced he was just sleeping so good. And the disciples woke him up, and he told the storm, peace be still. And everything just froze for a moment. And the disciples looked at him and said, what manner of man is this? See, even in that moment, they hadn't confessed Jesus as the son of God yet. But they recognized that he's a different kind of man. So at least they're there, right? It's one thing to send the disciples into the boat and dismiss the crowds. an entirely different thing to send them on their own by themselves into the storm. They find themselves a long way from the land at this point, right? They're beaten by the waves. The wind is against them. There's no relief. They are struggling at this point to stay alive. And you have to understand something at this point. While Jesus was away at the mountain, he clearly understands and sees the disciples in the storm. The gospel account of Mark says he saw that they were making headway painfully. You see, we're seeing the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God now at work because it's not like Jesus is going like this off the shore. Oh, there they are, you know, in the storm. No, he's actually in a mountain by himself, it says, praying. And he sees very clearly that the disciples are going through a storm. He's at the mountain, and yet he sees that they are in this dangerous situation. If Jesus wanted to relieve them of the crashing waves at this point, all he had to do was pray from the shore, and it would have been over just like that. That's the kind of power that Jesus contains. But that's not what he does, obviously. He must be praying something else. The specific prayer that he's praying is not recorded in the scripture, but if I were to venture the guess, I imagine it would be similar to the priestly prayer that's recorded in John chapter 17. Just by way of reminder, this is what Jesus had to say. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I believe what Jesus was praying was intercessory prayer for his disciples in this moment. And I think it was more than just physical protection. He prayed that their hearts would be softened because in that mode of kingship where people wanted to rally and force them into being king, their hearts were so hard in that moment. And I'll explain to you why I know this in a minute, okay? It's like this is twice now you've accused them of that, Ozan. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. But Jesus sees how hard their hearts are. And so he's praying in my mind. Would you soften their hearts? Bring them to a place of radical faith. You know, a hard heart is just like stone. You know, you can't do anything with it. And so when you soften it up and it becomes more malleable, you can actually adjust it and form it and shape it into the very image of Christ. The disciples don't know it at this point, but they are more secure in the boat at this moment than they were on the shore when they were being fed. When the disciples are furthest away from Jesus physically, Jesus was near to them through intercessory prayer. And I find great comfort in this, don't you? That even in our hopeless situations, that Jesus sees me, he's actually near to me, and he's interceding for me. And when we find ourselves in that hopeless situation, Jesus knows exactly where we are. Our situations are never a mystery to Jesus Christ. Your situation is not a mystery to Jesus Christ. He knows exactly what you are going through. And so he prays, and he prays, and for a long time he prays. The Bible tells us that it's not until the fourth watch of the night that Jesus comes. That means that they have been battling this storm for hours Something in the range of six to eight hours, and it's almost done because the fourth watch of the night is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. In that, in that time frame. So they've been fighting this thing for some time. And these are experienced fishermen. As much as seven of them are experienced fishermen, we know at least four of them are experienced fishermen. And they cannot conquer these waves. I could just see them, right, taking turns. Peter's rowing it. And then he hands it over to John, and then John hands it over to, you know, and they're just doing this thing where it's like they're, they're just getting worn out. And there's just no amount of effort that they can throw into the storm that's going to make anything and ease any tension or calm the storm in that situation. They're being stretched, and I would argue they're being stretched beyond their own limits. No amount of their own efforts will get them to the shore. And I want to make a few observations at this point. They're getting nowhere very fast. They're tired, they're terrified of their lives, and they are utterly incapable and hopeless on their own. If they are to stay in the storm on their own, they will perish. And I think sometimes we get into the habit, right, as young Christians or in certain circumstances like this where we come up to a person who's undergoing suffering and we tell them, God will never give you more than you can handle. Have you ever been? I've been told that. God will never give you more than you can handle. Or how many of us have actually told people that? I've told people that. That's not true. Listen to what Paul shares about his experience to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to read this to you. This is so profound. It's like Paul went through exactly the same storm spiritually. And this is what he has to share in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened, listen to this, beyond our own strength, that we despaired of life itself. They were at a point where they despaired of life because they were stretched beyond their own limits. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But he doesn't end there. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. We are getting stretched beyond our own limits, not so that we can determine how well we can do in the storm, but so that we can see the power of Christ at work in us. And this is the same Paul that in chapter 12, remember chapter 12, verse 9 to 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He recognized that in those moments of despairing life, that it was for the purpose of exalting and glorifying and leaning very heavily on, like all of himself, on Jesus Christ in that moment. So let me suggest an alternative approach to you when you're dealing with people who are going through the storm. There is no trouble in your life that Jesus cannot overcome. There is no trouble in your life that Jesus cannot overcome. If you haven't gone through the storm, be ready. Because Jesus is coming. (laughs) And he's going to work such power and marvelous things in your life as a result of that. It removes me out of the picture and it puts Jesus Christ front and center in my life. In full confidence, we can say Jesus will deliver you and he will rescue you. And it takes a radical kind of faith to come to that kind of conclusion. Well, if seasoned fishermen can't save themselves in a rowboat, okay, it's probably bigger than a rowboat, to get across the sea, nor can you overcome the storms in your own life. Did you get that? If seasoned fishermen can't get across the sea, you can't save yourself. But God has a purpose and he has a plan. He's not after your comfort, he's after your heart. This is why we've been calling it uncomfortable grace. Jesus is fashioning such marvelous faith in the discomfort that we experience when we lean in on him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is revealed through the struggles that we encounter. Romans chapter 5 verse 4 talks about how the trials that we undergo will actually result in a proven character, which leads to hope in Jesus Christ. And I've been going through the book of Acts, and you read these Amazing stories, not just in Acts, but just throughout history of Christians who undergo suffering. And they say things like this, I can't believe that Jesus counted me worthy enough to undergo suffering for his sake. We can actually feel unworthy when we're not undergoing suffering for Jesus' sake. 
what an interesting concept, one that just goes countercultural to everything we know. Jesus was radical. Listen, if you've never had a storm in your life, you will never witness the incredible power of God's transforming grace over you. How many of us are fighting a storm right now? You are going to experience such radical, marvelous grace of God. It is in my darkest moments that I look back at myself at the feet of Jesus Christ, giving him praise and glory and honor because Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to me through those moments. We boast all the more in our weaknesses that the grace of Christ might be made manifest. Every circumstance, every event, every trial in your life cannot outweigh the powerful dominion of Christ over your life. And though you find yourself in trouble trying to get above the water just to keep your nostrils over the sea to stay alive, I assure you, Jesus has dominion over all of it. And if you call you out to him for rescue, Jesus will come to you and he will rescue you. And this is what it looks like. Our fourth and final point, implantation of faith. He comes at the perfect time, doesn't he? Matthew chapter 14, verses 25 to 27. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He came walking on the sea. I remember the boat is a long way off at this point, And Jesus suddenly shows up walking on the sea. He must not have been doing some leisurely stroll. He just showed up right there at the boat. And as I read this thing, this is what I, I was so encouraged when those kids just kind of swarmed out of here, you know. There's something so special about kids because when you're reading passages like this and kids are listening, we tend to become numb to these words as we read them over and over again, you know, Jesus walking on the sea, walking. And you tend to forget how special that truly is. But when you're reading passages like this to children, they will pause you. And sometimes I even find myself getting frustrated because I'm just trying to get through the book, you know. And they're just like, Dad. You know, dad, and they're raising their hand, you know, the whole distraction thing, and you're just like starting to boil up. As you're reading the word of God, it's just so disturbing, you know. I'm so ashamed of myself. And what happens is you read a passage, like I'm pretty sure I was reading this passage to Gideon, my oldest. And he just kept saying, dad, dad, he just kept cutting me off. And he said, dad, Jesus was walking on water. And so I just froze in that moment. And I remember thinking to myself, Jesus was walking on water, you know? How exciting is that? If you need proof that Jesus is the Son of God, he was walking on the water. Jesus walks on water. We can get excited about that. You know, kids are so inattentive to those things, aren't they? Can we be more attentive to those things as God's children? Praise God. They're terrified. And they think that a ghost is among them, right? And they have every right to think that, right, from our perspective. Because it's like they're used to the laws of buoyancy, you know, because they're in a boat. You got the, you know, the air and the water, and it kind of like it keeps you up. And so when someone's walking on the water, our natural tendency is to think they're going to go straight down. And so how do you logically formulate these thoughts in your mind? You say, well, it must be a ghost. 
And so the disciples see Jesus coming on the water, and they freak out. Like they're shrieking, screaming. Twelve grown adults, fishermen, right? They're supposed to be manly men. Freaking out. It must be a ghost. And they're terrified. And Jesus immediately spoke to them and said the most comforting words we can ever hear in a situation like this. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. He says, take heart. Have courage. Do not be afraid. Over a hundred times in the Bible, God commands his people not to be afraid. And never does he do that command, give us that command, without inserting himself into the picture. Right? He doesn't just say, don't be afraid, and then stop there. He says, don't be afraid, because I am here. So when we find ourselves in a difficult circumstance where we're fearing, and God comes alongside us and says, don't be afraid, it's not because we can somehow manufacture that kind of courage within our own self. I have a friend that I work with, you know, and um, I used to be on that, um, that LinkedIn website thing where, like, for professors, it's like the boring version of Facebook, essentially, you know, and, uh, and, and he posted something on, on this, this, um, this website, and it, he, he, it was a picture of a stone, and there's this carving on it that said courage, and the wording of it was, when I find myself in a difficult circumstance, I reach into my pocket, and I pull out this stone, <laughs> And it says courage on it. And he says, and it reminds me to not be afraid. And he said, he, he's saying he can manufacture courage. Right? What a foolish. When I'm in the storm, and I'm like, storm everywhere, I don't go like this. Hang on. It's all good. That's not how Jesus operates in our life. You see, there's nothing we can do to manufacture our own courage. Do you think that people have a tendency to be afraid? Yes. We have a tendency to be afraid. His command is to take heart and do not be afraid. It was never meant to be an isolation of himself. God never commands people to have courage and then isolates himself from the picture of what he's saying. Courage is always produced by God in you. Courage is always produced by God in you. This is a sort of courage and peace that cannot be manufactured. It is always tied to the presence of God. He says, take heart, it is I. And the words that are translated, it is I, in the Greek is ego imi. And if you look at the Greek Septuagint of the Bible, that's where they take the Old Testament and they they translate it to Greek. And when you you look at the storyline of Moses, remember he's kind of doing his leisure walk and it's like, whoa, there's a a bush over there on fire, kind of does one. (laughs) I'm just picturing like, whoa. And um, he has this conversation with God. And God sends them out to his people and says, when I go to the people and they ask me who you are, what your name is, what do I tell them? And God says, tell them, I am who I am. Those words translated ego, emi, the same words translated I am in this passage right here. It was unmistakable at that point to the disciples that the great I am is with them. There is no room for fear because I am who I am has come to be with you. This is the same person who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Ego emi, the great I am, God himself now present with the disciples. They did not miss that. Believe me, they did not miss that. You see, man's efforts cannot save. God's works cannot, good works rather, cannot deliver you. Wealth cannot deliver you. 
No amount of swimming lessons are going to deliver you. No amount of boat lessons is going to deliver you. No amount of head knowledge is going to deliver you. There is only one who can deliver you, and he walks on water. Jesus showed up at just the right time. Do you ever wonder, what if God was just a few minutes late? Because like, if God were to show up, it would have been a minute ago. It would have been a day ago. It would have been a week or a month ago. He hasn't forgotten you. He's going to show up at just the right time in your life. He doesn't forget about you. He's not disconnected from you. He doesn't do that. Jesus showed up at just the right time. His timing is always perfect. At this point, Peter does what I feel is not out of character for Peter, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 14, verses 28 to 31. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. He walked on the water, <laughs> you know, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. He sees Jesus now as Jesus, doesn't he? I mean, I think people look at this passage and they use it as a way of talking about lack of faith. That You see, if Peter lacks faith, then we lack faith. And there's some truth to that. I'm not trying to dismiss that. But Jesus saw, or Peter rather, saw Jesus for exactly who Jesus was in that moment. And his faith was so pure in that moment that he could walk on water. I mean, I'm envisioning what this must have been like for him. He sees Jesus after having gone through this storm for hours and hours, and he knows he's not going to make it. Jesus shows up. It's like everything around his world must have just vanished, and there was only Jesus in his life at that moment. And so he's thinking to himself, I would rather be in the presence of Jesus than in the boat and in the storm. So he gets out of the boat, and he makes his way towards Jesus, and he locks eyes with him, and it's out of love that he gets out of the boat. And he makes them, until for a brief moment, he, he notices the wind is around him. His eyes, which were locked on Jesus, suddenly goes like this. I mean, if it's one degree off, he just took his eyes off of Jesus. And what happens in that moment? He begins to sink. The laws of buoyancy back in action as a result of what he's going through. And so what does Jesus do in that moment after Peter cries out, save me? Immediately says he grabs his hand. Jesus doesn't say, hey, let's just talk this out for a few minutes because you were walking on water just now. That was pretty awesome, right? And so let's just kind of go through the steps X, Y, Z of what's going to get you back to this place. No, he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus instantly grabs his arm and pulls him out of the water. May I suggest to all of you that that is the same cry that we all must make. I became a Christian with virtually those same words. I knew where my life was going. I knew that there was no escape out of my situation. I was desperate, and I cried out for help. And sadly, some people don't ever come to this moment where they ask for help. They don't cry out. They'll start to sink. They'll even hit rock bottom. And there are many who just refuse to ask for help and never confess their desperate need. Peter knew where he was headed to, and he didn't have to hit rock bottom before he cried for help. 
immediately Jesus grabs him and pulls him out to safety. And I want you to understand something at this point. The point of this passage is not to teach people how to walk on water. And the point of the passage is not to teach people of lack of faith. It is to show those who cannot walk on water that there is one who can walk on water, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Do you see it yet? Jesus will place you in a radical storm in order to produce in you a radical kind of faith. And I want to button this up with an application, right? What do we do with all this now? I hope it seems obvious to you by this point that all of us are like that, aren't we? Our faith is firm. Our confidence is unbreakable. That is, until some sort of testing comes our way and we begin to face obstacles in life and the threats are out there in our hearts, they begin to sink. Our confidence begins to crumble into the pieces. And it's in these moments of desperation we have to look to Jesus. We have to look to Jesus. You know, we've been preaching this for 2,000 years among the church. And it is such a simple application. Lock step eyes on Jesus. We get so distracted by everything around us, don't we? It's like the last resort for some of us. But the Bible says this is the first action, is to look to Jesus. Acts 4.20.12, rather, says, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name in heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved, the perfect and only Savior, Jesus Christ. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I want to conclude our time and bring us full circle. Back to Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. And when Jesus got into the boat and the wind ceased, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Praise God. What a statement that we all must make. Mark adds a very important note at the end of his account in Mark chapter 6, verses 51 to 52. When Jesus gets into the boat, he writes these words, They were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Did you get that? They didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Something happened between the feeding and this moment that brought the disciples to this confession that Jesus is the Son of God, and it wasn't the feeding, which means there's only one event that took place between the feeding and that confession, and it was the storm that brought them to this place. Jesus produces in them a faith and a courage that cannot be manufactured. John's Pearl account says that when Jesus got into the boat, immediately they showed up at the shore after it became calm. I mean, imagine you're like in the middle of the storm fighting this thing. Jesus shows up. He calms the storm. Boom, immediately you're at the shore. Like miracle after miracle after miracle in the lives of these disciples. And this is what we call quantum leap, you know where one thing traverses in space to another without actually traversing through the actual space. It just kind of reappears in another location. It's like, it's mind-blowing. Physics have been struggling with this for thousands of years, well, hundreds of years, maybe. In closing, let's see the impact this experience had on the disciples the following day. The next day, the crowds find Jesus again, and they're ready for breakfast. I mean, you can't even make this stuff up, folks. (laughs) 
They're ready for breakfast. Jesus said, you are, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. And he says, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Instead of the loaves, Jesus preaches a sermon on the bread of life. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. You see, Jesus is not some sort of attachment to your tool belt that you just pull out occasionally, you know, when you need them. Jesus is life itself. He's saying, I am life. And so he says, you must eat of my flesh and you must drink of my blood because he is life itself. Every thought should be captive to, to Jesus Christ. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is what he says in John chapter 6. This was a very difficult sermon for the crowds to swallow. And I know this because in John chapter 6, we read of their response. And I'm going to close with these words from Jesus. John chapter 6, verses 66 to 99. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, now speaking on behalf of the twelve, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? There's only you. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? And he goes on to speak about Judas. But they come to this amazing affirmation of who Jesus Christ is. And with that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you that even in the midst of the storms, you're doing something so marvelously, tremendously powerful that we can't even grasp it in our own minds. You'll take the worst of circumstances and you will fashion out of it a faith that is so radical and can't be manufactured because it can only come by the work of Christ in our lives. Lord, I pray that for those who have been through the storms, that they would offer encouragement to those that are undergoing storms right now, that they would share their testimony in Christ with them, that there is a work in Christ that's going to take place because there is no trouble that Jesus cannot overcome in our lives. And for those who have not experienced the storms yet, because of the power and the movement in this local body, I know it's going to come because it's not long after this kind of movement, Satan wants to come in and start attacking something so powerful. I pray that they would be mindful of the storms they're going through, that our first response would be to look to Jesus, not our last. We lift our time up to you, Lord. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.